Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. Thank you for listening. We would like to remind you that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. Please consider supporting the show. Check us out on Patreon or simply leave a review on iTunes. Here is your host and creator of the show, Known Wells. Hey, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of Yumi Empathy. This is episode 88 with my guest, Natalie Megan. We talk about sensitivity as a strength. We also explore being curious about our emotions, nightmares as a sign of trauma, parenting with mental health struggles, raising kiddos to grow up to be feely humans, uh, all sorts of stuff. I really, really love Natalie. She is an amazing human, and she is the creator of the Crybaby Club. You should definitely follow them on Instagram. It's at the Crybaby Club underscore, at the Crybaby Club underscore. Really amazing stuff. I love what Natalie is doing. She has a lot of amazing merch, like pins and t-shirts and jewelry, a lot of a lot of really neat stuff. I love what she's doing. And uh, she's from Memphis, so she has a sweet southern charm that I thought was endearing. Uh, before we get to the episode, though, I want to remind you that uh, in September, uh, September 27th through 29th, I am going to be a counselor and a workshop leader at Camp Heal, which is a uh, eating disorder uh Enrichment camp uh, led by Project Heal. If you go to bit.ly slash camp heal, bit.ly slash camp heal, you can learn more about it and sign up if you want to be a camper. I would love to, I would truly love to see you there. It's it's going to be in uh, just outside of Los Angeles in the An- Angeles State Forest. Uh, there will be workshops and jewelry making and hiking, and it's for people who are in uh you know in the one to two year range uh recovered from eating disorders um and there will be a lot of great uh, other workshops there and people and i'm very very excited and so i hope to see you there again you can learn more about that at bit.ly slash camp heal uh please 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 leave a rating and review for the show uh just go to itunes or apple podcasts and Give me five stars. I am very fond of five stars. Sometimes I like four, but I really, truly like five. So make my day. Leave me a rating and take a couple minutes to write a review. That would be awesome, too. Let me know what you think of the show. I I put my heart and soul into this show. It means the world to me, and I hope it means the world to you, too. So I'd love to hear what, what this show means to you. And uh, make sure to follow Yumi Empathy on Instagram and Twitter at Yumi Empathy. I've got a Patreon uh, page at patreon.com slash Yumi Empathy. You get some bonus content there and other goodies. And we have a Facebook group. It's at facebook.com slash groups slash Yumi Empathy. Go there, join the group, and uh, hang around with other beautiful, feely humans like yourself. Okay. Shall we get to the episode, episode 88, with my guest, Natalie Megan, on sensitivity as a strength. Hey, 
podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of Yumi Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our neuroses, our mental illnesses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand-in-hand, Break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I'm ready for a good feely cry with creative, doodler, self-expressive creator of the Cry Baby Club, Natalie Megan. Hello, Natalie. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm so glad uh, you're on Yumi Empathy. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. So, uh, listeners, today we are going to get to know Natalie, a a new friend of the Yumi Empathy Verse. Uh, I don't know why I said verse. Uh, collective, <laughs> the Feely Collective of the Yumi Empathy uh, Empire. Uh, that's another terrible word. Sorry, I'm blabbering. So we're going to get You're to know Natalie. Great. And uh, but before we do that, we always start the show, Natalie, with just an emotional check in. How are you feeling? Right now, how is how's your day going? How's your kind of week been? How, where, where you are? Where are you? Where are you at emotionally? Mm. Well, right now I'm nervous just because we're doing this, um, but that's gonna go away, I'm sure, once we get going. And then uh, my week was really long; it wasn't challenging or you know heavy. It was just really, really long, and a lot of little things kept piling on top of one another. So I'm having a really calm day today to kind of make up for that. And so I'm feeling kind of o- just okay. I'm okay. feeling okay. Okay. Yeah. I I think, yeah, we were recording, um, or before we started recording, uh, we were talking about just how we need that sort of day to decompress. I mean, I think we all need that. That's like very human. And it does, it's interesting how the day's... They're the same every week, 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. And yet some weeks just feel like drag on forever. It's so weird. And nothing monumental happened. It's just, I don't know. It's weird. It's a weird thing. <laughs> it is a weird thing. Because I, I, I think I felt that a little bit this week too. I I think I started the week just tired and that that sort of did it. And yeah, so I feel yeah. Um, I'm glad you're, you've found, uh, today being a a bit of a respite, respite zone. So hopefully you can sort of refuel and recharge a little bit. Yeah. I'm very thankful for it. I'm taking it in. Nice. Nice. Yeah. This week, uh, for me has been, I I mentioned just a bit more tired. Um, last weekend, uh, some of my Instagram followers know that I, I, did a I'm a runner and I I did a 20 no not 25k a half marathon trail race last weekend and it was great I did well but the whole day after I was just in terrible stomach pains and cramps and just gross 
toilet stuff. <laughs> and it oh, was, fun. yeah, it was a nightmare. And I've had oh. this happen before after long runs. And you hear about this, you know, you hear about, you know, they mm-hmm. call it like runner's trots. It's just gross. Just, uh, I even saying, saying that. For, it's I gross. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I, I feel like I, even going into the race, I was, I think I'm just tired of those long runs. I don't know if I'm going to do them anymore. I think I need to listen to my body. Yeah. Which is something I've always That's struggled very with. Do you, do you struggle with that, listening to your body? Hmm. No one's ever asked me that before, and so I've never thought about it. I feel like I'm in the middle okay. because I, I have anxiety. And so when something is going on in my body, it's kind of like a chicken and the egg thing. Uh-huh. So I'm like, am, am I feeling this physically because of my emotions, or am I emotional about this because I'm feeling this? Like, and so I don't know which one came first. So sometimes I'll go, like if, if I'm, if I'm feeling sick, I'll go to the doctor and I'll have them tell me that something's actually wrong. But for the most part, I think, I think I know myself really well. So I guess I do listen to my body and I know when, when it's mental and when it's purely physical and when to do something about it, you know, does that make sense? Totally makes sense. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you are, that's great. Like, that's a great sort of progression. I think a lot of us struggle with even just asking those questions of, is this in my head? Is this, is this my anxiety or depression? Or is this, you know, some physical ailment? Like, it's even hard to make the step of asking those questions, you know? Right. And recognizing that your emotional well-being can affect you physically is something that I think a lot of people, especially people who don't struggle with mental illness, don't really understand like the, the not wanting to get out of bed thing. That's a real thing. The fatigue Mm -hmm. is a, it's a real thing. And, and you have the energy, you've had a good night's sleep or whatever, and you still don't want to do anything. Like it can very much affect you physically. But then again, like that, like I was saying, like, then it's hard to know which one started the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. It really is a chicken and egg thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a chip on my shoulder about the, like, the mindset that speaks to that level of ignorance where some would lead someone to say something along the lines of, oh, you're depressed. Just, just get outside, go for a hike. And which, which does help sometimes. It does. Is- it absolutely yeah. does. It's totally valid. I don't want to feel angry toward that person. Like, I want to feel like, hey, maybe they're just, um, they're not informed, right? They're not educated right. on the matter. They haven't experienced it themselves, so they can't have that full empathy. And I, I get that. But part of me is just like, fuck you. <laughs> uh, you know? Yeah. When um, I, when I, that's hard. It's hard to hold that anger in because yeah. me, I tend to just go with they're trying. They're trying to be helpful. They, are, yeah, uh, that is a and so healthier. That's where I usually sit. I'm like they're trying to be helpful. When they said cheer up, they didn't mean for it to be such an emotional slap to me. Yeah, they meant it nicely, and and usually I give people the benefit of the doubt like that. But yeah, sometimes I'm just like, hi, I have depression, so you can go. <laughs> yeah, go away. no, totally. Um, and look at you being so sweet and sort of accommodating. I, uh, um, 
have you always lived in uh, Tennessee? Yes. Okay. All my life. Uh, mm-hmm. there, was, there was like a brief period when I was three that I lived in Chicago and then a brief like less than a year and then less than a year I lived in Mississippi. Okay. Um, but Tennessee and in the Memphis area has been where I've been for the majority of my life. Nice. Yeah, I've been I've been to Memphis. Uh, it was years ago, and it's a really neat town. I I really enjoyed it when I was there. Yeah, it is. It's got a lot of history, and it's got a lot of really cool people. And but like, you can tell that people are really trying to shift the focus back onto the makers and the creatives in Memphis. Like mm-hmm. everybody here really wants to bring Memphis up to where it needs to be or mm-hmm. where we think it should. Be. And so it's just a really nice town. That's nice. Um, well, let's 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 jump into your story, uh, Natalie. I I don't know much about you. Um, I I try not to do too much sort of digging and research before I I do these because I like to be as present as possible. Uh, that makes sense. <laughs> so I appreciate what, that. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Um, so one of the things I like to do uh, ask up front really is like. Can you give me a seminal moment or two uh, experiences or just uh, moments in your life um, that stick out to you in your brain that are important sort of milestones in your own mental health sort of journey that that maybe speak to who you are today? Could be from childhood, could be from young adulthood, just kind of a couple of seminal moments in your mental health journey. Oh, that's a good question. Um, let's see. I know that there was one instance, like that brief period I talked about when I lived in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had been, uh, like when I was born, my grandmother raised me. And then when my mom wanted to move to Chicago, she took me, That and I was three. So that had been three years with um, my grandma being my primary caregiver. And then they took me to Chicago, and so I didn't get to see her every day. Um, and then we came down for a visit and before anything even happened, I just burst through the door and like embraced her in this dramatic fashion and just cried. Mm-hmm. And they were, everyone around me was so worried. They thought I was hurt or something had happened. And so they were like, what's wrong? And, and I was like, I just feel so much mm. and I'm so happy to be here. And that's pretty much the exact, that's, that's who I am. That's who I've always been. Um, and so that, like, once I got a little older and I looked back and I heard this story that, like, they were retelling me, I was like, huh, that makes sense why y'all never knew what to do with me. Because I was just a big ball of feelings. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, so that was that was kind of a pinnacle moment where when I started to look at that differently and, like, um, dissect it, I guess, mm-hmm. and just be like, so I've always just been like that. Like, I think I'm going to feel it and no one can really like stop me until I've gotten it out. And, yeah. um, so that was pretty big. Like, it's just kind of like a footprint of me. Yeah. And then, um, around age 16 was when my, well, I mean, my mental illness came so early in my life, so it's kind of hard to pick out moments that uh, you know stand out mm-hmm. because it's all been kind of shrouded in this cloud of mental yeah, I hear that 
Um, I started having nightmares when I was seven. And so uh, monsters, snakes, people breaking in the house and murdering my family and I couldn't save them all. Oh my God. And I like every night and I still have them now, which I, I guess that's another one, like a moment where I was like, Oh, I should probably talk to somebody about this. Cause I was talking to my friend about it and it was like a new friend. So we had been talking pretty consistently and I told her, I was like, yeah, I had another nightmare tonight or last night. And I was telling her about it. And she was like, so you have these pretty often. I was like, yeah, I have, a, I have nightmares every night. And she was like, that's not normal. How old were you like, when you had this conversation? I was like 28. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so a long time. And she was just like, that's not normal. I was like, so do you not have nightmares? And she was like, maybe once in a while. But I don't even remember them when I wake up. You you have them every night. That's not normal. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So then I kind of asked other people. I was like, hey, do you have nightmares? And they were like, no, not really. And I was like, oh, okay. Something's wrong. <laughs> like <laughs> tr- Trauma has clung on to me and comes out when I sleep. So that was another kind of like new perspective on my mental health and mm-hmm. like, oh, there's this is not a normal thing that should be happening to me. This is not something I have to live with. Yeah. So, so when you, um, when you, um, kind of realized you were a deep, feely, sensitive, you know, person. And I, I, I am very much that way as well. So you're in, you're in safe company there. Um, (laughs) how, how was it growing up like that? Like, did you, did you struggle in that? You know, I kind of reclused into myself, mm-hmm. um, not in like a dangerous way or an alarming way, but um, we were, I was really lucky to grow up in a very small town. And so um, whenever I would have a hard day at school, when I came home, we had land and I would just go outside uh, and I would climb trees and I would swing on my tire swing and I would think about the day. Like, you know how you lay in bed and you think about every single thing that happened? Sure during your day, like you just run through it. Like I would do that. And so I would kind of talk myself into the situation and then back out again so that, you know, I could let it go. Um, not like out loud, but in my head, I would just be sitting there thinking about it. And, and then I would kind of leave it outside and then go in for dinner and that would be the end of my day. But, um, I also created, I started creating from a very young age because I figured out that if that I had a lot of ideas, I had a lot of thoughts and I had a lot of things that I wanted to do. And sometimes when I was really, really sad or, you know, just really, really emotional in any sort of way, I would just sit down and I would write. I tried sewing. I did cross stitching. I painted, um, you know, all of those kinds of things and just tried to find something that I was good at that made me feel good when I did it. And so that's kind of how my whole creative side came out, but Mm -hmm. it did help me to cope with all of the feelings that I had as well. How was the family unit? Um, Did you have support there? Did you ever (coughs) sort of talk about it? Um, my family is such a raw nerve in my system. Uh, my mom was really young when she had me. She was 15 and, um, you know, she did it alone. 
she finished high school and college eventually, but my grandma was my primary caregiver for a while. And then my mom and I did not really have a very good relationship for a long time. Um, because she, I believe she has a mental illness as well that she's never really gotten looked at. And so it was kind of like coexisting with her kind of helped me to, to take more looks at myself because Mm. I could, I could visibly see that she was having issues and she would not admit it or allow help to come to her at all. So you sense that she was struggling. You're like, I'm not going there. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to do the exact opposite and I'm going to face this, like whatever it is, I'm going to face it. And I'm going to talk about it and I'm not ever going to stop talking about it. And so, um, like around 16 was when, um, I ran away from home the first time and, oh no, the only time I only ran away once. Um, and you ran away because you felt alone. You felt like you didn't have support because of your mom. Um, yeah, my mom was a very, um, toxic person to be around. She was very my way to highway, very, um, self-depreciating. I remember some of my earliest memories of her were, um, her saying how ugly and fat she was and how no one liked her. Mm. Um, when she would get ready to go to work or get ready to go out, I remember hearing her say those things and, um, you know, stay in bed all day. And, and then when she got up, she was just like really, really angry, like really quick to anger all the time. And it usually got taken out on me. I was the oldest. And so I ran away from home and um, they put me into a behavioral hospital after that, which was kind of their way of helping. But I'm pretty sure that my mom was more like fixer, not like what can I do to help fix her problems or what can I do to help make her life a little bit easier to handle Um, it was more like here you take her and you fix her. And so I was inpatient for about two months when I was 16. And the reason that I had to stay so long is because my mom stopped coming to the family therapy. And when you're a minor, or at least when I was in there, when you're a minor, your family has to come because they have to know that you have a good support system on the outside or they're reluctant to let you go, you know? And so my mom, once they started wanting her to take some responsibility for what she had done or the hand that she played in my, you know, downward spiral, it was, um, she stopped coming. And so I didn't really have an example of a good support system. So I had to stay for a pretty long time, but my grandma stepped in and she started coming to therapy and she started like when they did release me to outpatient, she started bringing me every morning to school and, picking me up and then taking me to the therapy on Thursday nights. I remember, and this was like, we lived in a small town. Like I said, we didn't live in Memphis, but the the hospital was in Memphis. So she drove me an hour there and an hour back every day. So she was really helpful there because she, she, she didn't really understand why I was depressed. And she like, she's from generation and I've heard her say millions of times, like, I just loved you. And I thought that that would make you feel better because you felt loved. Yeah. This had, you know, and I, it's hard to explain to her that it had nothing to do with that. Like it had nothing to do with her. It had nothing to do with really anybody. I've always been kind of like, I feel like I was kind of set up to just have these feelings and then things happen to me to make them more exacerbated. Hmm. Yeah. So 
Now, um, when you were at the inpatient, uh, what did you what did you do? What was your day to day like? Um, it was so it was so weird, and I think back to it, and it just seems like I wasn't even in the because it was just so strange. My days were planned out. I was in there for depression and self-harm. I, I don't think I mentioned that I had self-harmed for a good year at that point. I was just cutting mm. and um, cutting your, your arms, my arms and my thighs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so they had me on a red band when I first got there, which is a suicide um, watch kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like just make sure I don't have anything sharp or anything like that. And, all of the stuff that I brought, they had to go through it and make sure I wasn't trying to smuggle anything in or anything. I was just like, this is so bizarre. Like I'd never experienced anything like this where, where they automatically just didn't trust me from the, from the get. And that I remember feeling that like I've never not had trust mm. for no so reason. So you felt like you didn't, that was unwarranted at the time? At the time I did, but I mean, I know that they were just trying to make sure I was safe and keeping the other patients safe too. Yeah. But like at the time I was just like, I, I'm literally just a sad girl. Like I'm just a sad yeah. girl. Can you just let me have my CD player, please? <laughs> like, just, sure. Yeah. Did you ever and, have suicidal thoughts? I did. And I, I was, but I was always too afraid. I, I'm afraid of dying. Uh, dying is like one of my biggest fears and just not existing anymore mm. and not getting a chance to be finished before I'm taken. Mm. It, it's just always been very heavy on me. And so, you know, I would lay there and I would think about it and it would like, I remember falling asleep thinking about it sometimes. Yeah. Like I just yeah. be like, if I just didn't wake up, maybe this would be the way to, to do it. Like I'm tired. No one likes me. Uh, a lot of my mom's, uh, comments about herself repeated in my head. Mm. Um, no one likes me. No one cares about me. And it would just be easier if I just wasn't here. And then I would fall asleep and I'd wake up and I'd start the day with that kind of, and of nightmares all night. And so I'd start the day like that. And so it was just kind of, it was a heavy time being a teenager. It's hard. It's so hard being a teenager. And especially when you're struggling with, like you did, like I did, depression, anxiety, uh, self-harm, suicidal ideation, uh, eating disorders for me. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's the time and like, it's, it's so interesting how so many people I talk to, like the, everyone around their teenage years into their sort of late teenage years is when like all like this stuff comes to fruition because it's the time of our life where we're trying to figure out like, what are we about? And we're finally starting to like, maybe ask the questions that we need to ask. Definitely not well and not, Mm -hmm. you know, very emotionally intelligent, but at least we're trying to maybe do a little digging and yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough time for sure. Yeah. I, 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 and I was struggling with that when I was younger. Like I said, all this stuff kind of started, like I remember it being around seven and I didn't have the words to communicate properly what I was dealing with. And I remember some nights or mornings I would wake up and I felt like, you know, that feeling in the pit of your stomach when you've lost someone or you miss someone so much, mm, Yeah. but I, no, nobody was gone. Like mm. nothing had happened. No one died. 
I just woke up with that feeling. And that's a hard thing to say as a seven-year-old and explain it to your mother or whoever it is that's supposed to be like taking care of you. Like, Hey, I feel like I missed someone like that. You know, I'm a little kid. Like, what am I supposed to say? And then they're like, well, who do you miss? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) So, but now, you know, I, it it was something like, I, I assume it's depression or just residual feelings from all the nightmares that I had, but it was just something I got used to. And I had it, I had to deal with it by myself because I didn't know how to talk about it. Yeah, and there's, I mean, maybe I'm projecting here, but there's got to be a little bit of feeling of loss of, like, I want a mom that's there, that's going to make me feel a little less alone. Yeah, and to dive a little further into that whole thing, like, I have a pretty triggering story, I'm sure, like, people know that if they're listening to this, that people are going to talk about things, but my mom's husband actually um, molested me when I was seven, which is when all this started. Oh, Um, I'm so sorry. Yeah, me too. Um, But the next day, because I remember seeing a special or something about this, and and I was was like, okay, well, I have to tell someone. So the next day, I told my mom. And she hugged me. And then told me not to tell anybody else because if I did, then dad might go to jail. Now, this is not my biological father, uh-huh. but I, I called him then. She was like, you don't want dad to go to jail, do you? And I was just like, well, no, you know. Oh, my God. So I never, I never told anybody. And she, like today, like not today, but recently I've mentioned this. And she's like, well, you said you were okay. And I was like, I was seven. <laughs> you like, were seven. And you were seven. sexually assaulted by an adult. Yeah. Um, wow. And I said I was okay. So it's still like this turning back on me kind of thing. And I was just like, okay. Um, and so I just kind of locked that back and I deal with that on my own because I'm never going to find um, the support and the backup and the, and the love that I need from my family unit in that sense on that specific thing. Because now it's been so long that they both remember it differently. He says he was asleep. She says that I said I was fine and, and whatever. And, and it's just like, okay, well, I'll deal with it and I'll, I'll do the work because this is my life and it's affecting me. It's obviously not affecting you guys, but it's affecting me. So I'll do the work and I'll put in the time that it takes to not have this be a heavy weight on me. And mm. so I have, been. but I mean, you know, that, that kind of loss. I mean, I'm sure that was a loss that day because I think up until then, I really, I, I liked my mom. I was pretty proud of her and she inspired me other than like not liking herself. She did finish school. She finished college and, you know, got married and had another baby. And she, she just was like this to me at, at the time, she was this really strong, funny um, woman that I was happy to be in her life. And then after that, I kind of, my seven-year-old self kind of felt the shift of like, oh, you're human and, and you're doing this wrong. <laughs> you're, you've done, you, this is wrong the way you're handling this. Like I knew it was wrong then. I know it's wrong. Now. It was wrong now. Um, but like that loss, since you said that, like maybe I was feeling some sort of loss in another way. Like maybe that was the loss because it was around that time that the nightmares started. Yeah. And I would wake up and feel sad. 
I, I'm my heart's breaking for you, Natalie. I, I, you know, just the courage alone to experience such a vile trauma and then have the courage to talk about it. You know, say like, "Hey, this happened to me," and then being met with, with that, this invalidating, um, yeah, just like it's so invalidating and, um not meeting you where, where you were a, a little innocent seven-year-old. Like that's, that's so heartbreaking. And it makes me think about like one of the sort of running themes on this show is, um, and I love it so much. It's my friend Katie had said it on episode way back in episode four. She said, we have to give people the dignity of their own experiences. And mm-hmm. that takes a lot of, um, kindness and respect and trust in others. Um, I think there's so much in life where we as humans, when we interact with each other, we bring in our own bullshit into it and Mm -hmm. we want to project and we want to um, say something's didn't happen a certain way because maybe we remembered it differently. But the truth of the matter is, Natalie, is you experienced um, it the way you experienced it. And that experience is valid. Um, and I think I, I wish, I wish for our, the sake of sort of your children and the sake of the children of the future that like parents are more mindful of that concept. Yeah. I, I definitely try to be more mindful of just allowing other people whatever they need. Mm-hmm. Um, like even something so simple, like the other day I was in line at Starbucks being basic and I love <laughs> being basic by the way. It's like my favorite thing to do. So what does that mean? I mean, I, I get the concept, but what does it mean to you? To me, honestly, it's like a default setting. Like I feel like when I, like when people say basic, I don't, I don't feel like it's a, an insult, but I know that some people mean it that way. Sure. But like, Basic means like synonyms are like regular, normal, you know, all that. Like you're just you're just typical. But that's fine. I don't mind being typical and liking things that most people like. I, I have a couple of weird things, but I, I don't mind falling into the into the box most so it's of the about time. But being I was just, you the way that people are themselves. Hmm. People like, oh, I had a guy flirt with me once and he told me, I like you, you're edgy, you're not basic. I was like, what does that mean? And uh, he was like, well, you know, you don't wear leggings and Ugg boots. They, oh, my God, and have coffee all the time. I said, I literally do. I just also <laughs> have a tattoo. Like, <laughs> you're, you're boxing me in and I'm already in there. Like, or, he was like boxing me out. Like, oh, the people are basic and they're in this box and you're on the outside. No, I'm in the box. I do the coffee. I have boots. I say like, oh my God, like I'm basic too. And I I find that very comforting because for a lot of my life, I wasn't basic and it was (laughs) hectic. Mm. And I'm happy to be, I'm happy to be simple now and just enjoy my life the exact way I want it to be. So if that means I'm basic, then fine. (laughs) I love it. I feel that. That's great. but I was in line at Starbucks and the person in front of me was taking so long. 
like really, really long. They were, they were, they took a long time at the speaker. They took a long time at the window. Like they were obviously not sure what was going on. And I started to feel in my body, like that impatience and like, what are you doing kind of thing. And then I stepped back cause I don't know this person. And so I took a step back and I was like, you know, this may be her first time here. She may have never been here before. And this might be really exciting for her. And so she's taking her time to pick a drink. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give her that. I'm not going to let her make, I'm not going to let this situation make me angry because it's not about me. I don't have anywhere to be. I don't have anything to do. So I'm just, I'm just going to let her have her time. And that made me smile. And then my mood instantly lifted because it's not, that's not about me. Just because it affected me doesn't make it about me. And you have to let, see, that's the thing too with like my grandma, when she would say like, I just tried to love you. Like it's, it's not about you or what you did or what you didn't do. This is about my experience and what I need. And I can't get it from you. I've got to figure out how to get it myself. And so like what you were saying about being more mindful about other people's needs outside of yourself. I I try to do that all the time because it's so weird to think about. There are people with thoughts (laughs) in their head that aren't me. Yeah. And then I will never know what they're thinking, what they want, what makes them happy. Like it's insane. And when you think about it, You just realize how small each of us are and we feel big to ourselves. And it's just, it's so weird. Being alive is so weird. It is weird. It's bonkers. (laughs) It's wild. Um, I think what you're saying is such an important part of empathy, right? You know, because you're right. We don't, we don't know what people are going through. We don't know what's going on, on inside their heads, but we do need to respect that they are, you know, choosing whatever life that they're choosing. We don't have control over that. I like to say that the world isn't happening to us. It's just happening. You know, we like, like we as humans try to make things so personal, like, ah, this person's uh, driving too slow and they're making me late. And it's like, no, they're just driving the way, the way they're driving and you'll get there when you get there. I think it's such an important mindfulness lesson and empathy lesson. Yeah. And I get really mad when I'm driving. I'm not a very patient driver. And so I'm working on that. (laughs) I think we all are working on that. God, I'm so easily pissed. I'm just like, what are you doing? And so I've been working on it, like, especially like turning it back. Cause I'm like, why am I mad? Oh, I'm mad because I'm late. Why am I late? That's my fault. It's not their fault. It's my fault. (laughs) Should have left earlier. This isn't about, this isn't about Greg in the Nissan. Okay. He's, he's just, he's just being Greg. Yeah. License plate. Cool. Greg. Cool. Greg. Yes. Cool. Greg's just being cool. Windows down. He's got nowhere to be. I don't know what he does for a living, but he's got nowhere to be. And he's probably like, I don't know. in finance, he's got some sweet shades. (laughs) He's like doing those sort of, uh, air sort of hand airplanes out the window. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. blonde and his hair is quaffed, but not too much. Yeah. Got yeah, a little I stubble. Yeah, I've yelled at him before on the road, so I know this man well. Fucking Greg, man. <laughs> <laughs> Real sick of your shit, Greg. <laughs> Do you remember remember the first time, or maybe not the first time, but like a a sort of pivotal moment when you cried? 
I think it was that same story I told you about when I was like three or four Mm -hmm. and I just cried because I didn't know what else to do. And, um, that kind of set the tone for the rest of my life. Like sometimes you just need to cry and then it's a system reset and you can just keep going. And that was what it was then. It was, I, I burst through the door. I was full of feelings and they all came out of my eyes and, and then we had a wonderful day. Like we went outside and we went fishing and we made ice cream and mm. you know, it was, a, it was a wonderful day. One of those crank, crank ha- things, hand crank things. No, it was automatic, but oh, okay. yeah, same idea. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, I just had to get it out. It was, it was killing me. Like the whole drive down there, I was full of nerves and anticipation. I was like, we're not going fast enough. And then I finally get there and she's there in her whole magical being self that my, four, I loved her so much when I was little. I love her now, but you know, like when I was little, she was just everything. And I just ran at her and just sobbed so hard that they were concerned for me. And I was just like, I'm so happy and I feel a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And just, I love, the, um, I love the idea that it's a reset. That's I think that's an interesting perspective on crying. Um, and I haven't heard that before. Do you... Yeah, I love thinking about it like that. Yeah. Like how... Is that still how you think about it? Is that still how it works for you? Absolutely. Um, and I was talking about this the other day on my live feed where when you're in de- like when you're in the depression and the depression is winning i like to say um you feel like you can't climb out of it but at some sometimes the, that's not when crying will help um that's when i say out loud usually i just sit up and i'm just like i don't have time for this i can deal with this later i have a life i have people that need things and I have to do them. And I don't have time to be sad right now. And it kind of makes me laugh. And it also kind of jolts me out of the funk that I'm in. And I kind of just put it in the back seat for a while. Hmm. And if the rest of the day just keeps getting worse and worse, I'm just like, I'm going to cry when I get home. But not right now. You know, uh, you know like I, can, I don't have time for this right now. I'll do it later. And then I get home and all of the weight of the heaviness of the day, just, I'm just like, okay, I got to get it out. So I was just cry for a good five, 10 minutes, work through everything, maybe say some stuff out loud. I don't know when I started doing that, but it helps me. And then I can be like, okay, what's for dinner? And I'm just, it's fine. I just had to get it out. I carried it all day. It was heavy and it was hard and I deserve to cry and I let it out and now I can eat pizza. That's uh, quite a skill. Like how, how do you, I mean, your, your sort of whole ethos is a sensitivity of strength, uh, which I, I agree and believe wholeheartedly. Uh, what tools have you been using to get to a place like that? Because I can't imagine that is your sort of initial default. Have you done therapy, medication, uh, self-talk, uh, et cetera? Absolutely. Absolutely. All of that. Like everything that you can try, I've, I've done. Mm-hmm. And I finally found like a nice rhythm, but it started with um, therapy and learning how to talk about my problems and put words to the feelings that I had and then creating 
is another way. Like if I'm feeling really anxious, um, which I, I'm sure you can imagine any time that I'm around my family causes me great anxiety. But um, like whenever I'm anxious, I will draw. I will just bring my book with me. I'll bring my iPad with me and I'll draw. Like I'm still in the conversation. I'm still able to talk. I'm still able to make it through it. Um, but I have something there that helps get me through it mm. with the drawing and creating has always been like that for me. And then um, therapy, I really started going to it about two years ago and I found a really good therapist, which takes a long time. Totally. And I don't think enough people know that. Like they expect it to be like, like if you go to any eye doctor, they can tell you that you have bad eyes and that you need glasses. It's not like that with um, therapists. You have to find one that fits with you. And so that took a long time. I finally found one and I feel really good about it. And I also started medication and I had, that's another thing that takes a lot of time. That's another thing. Like you can't just, it's not like my head hurts, take a Tylenol, I'm cured. Oh, 100%. It's, and I, that's such a misconception. It's like, well, just go take some Prozac or something. I'm like, first of all, I've already tried that. Yeah. It Prozac gave me didn't migraine. work for me either. Yeah. Like what's next? Like you can't just, it's, it's such a moving target. Yeah. And so it's hard to find a good medicine that will help or even a couple medicines. I'm on a few and, um, that, because I wanted to, to lift me out of my despair and at the same time, not dim my light. Like I didn't want to be a zombie. I didn't want to lose pieces of my personality. Sure. I just wanted to feel okay. Yeah, absolutely. And so it takes a long time with the therapy and the medication to get everything lined up so that you can fall into a regimen of this mental wellness. And then also I started, like, obviously, um, I was told at a very young age not to tell things. Um, and that was a very big deal for me at the time. And then once I got a little bit older, I never stopped talking about things. Hmm. I decided to, it's your to own little, just go uh, the rebellion. Opposite. Yeah, my little rebellion. I was like, I'm going to talk about this and I'm never going to stop talking about it. I'm sad. I, I need this. And, and I, it like, it took a long time to figure out how to communicate with others, but I had to learn how to communicate it with myself first. Of course. Like I'm feeling anxious. So what do I need? Um, I guess this will make me feel better. Let's try it. And, you know, and then you're not lashing out at people that you love and care about you when they do something wrong. You're saying like, listen, I'm having a really bad brain day and everything is setting me off. And so I need to take 15 minutes and clear my head and then I'll come back out. I'm going to go in the room and I'll come back out or something like that. Sure. Instead of just holding it in and holding it in and holding it in. And then it explodes and you're like, well, I asked you to take the trash out and you don't care about the trash enough to yell. Like it is not that serious. But if you don't know how to communicate what you actually are feeling, it comes out another way to hurt the people around you and so I had to learn how to talk to myself and I had to learn how to talk to other people and all of that combined has made it to where I'm kind of really good I'm a good man in a storm like if I even if I've got a whole tumultuous minefield inside of me going on you, you won't know because I know how to face it and I know how to talk myself through it and I also know how to tell the people around me what I need, when I need it, and ask for help. And I know how to say no. 
also, which is a really big scale. That's huge. What has the, have you been met with any uh, stigma, any sort of like confusion, um, derision, you know, people with people in your life, you know, uh, sort of in this mental health journey? Um, yeah, some people will, you, no one's ever really said anything mean to me that I can think of right now, but you can just tell that they kind of think differently of you. Um, but I, you know, I'm in getting older, I've noticed less because I care less, um, what other people notice about me. Like I, I go to a a freeing feeling. It is the most beautiful thing that I've, and I've never really cared to begin with. Honestly, I don't. I don't remember ever liking like even something simple like I like this shirt and oh he teased me for wearing it so I'm never wearing it again like I was just like okay you don't like my shirt that's fine like I like it like I've always been very very sure of myself even when I wasn't sure of my feelings I knew what I liked and I knew who I was and I knew who I wanted to be I just didn't know how to get there and so the freeing aspect of not caring what people think about my mental health is very just life changing. I'll, I'll go to a restaurant with my friends and I will take my pill box out of my purse at the table and I will take my Zoloft and my Abilify at the table. Like I don't care who sees me. Like you don't want me to not take it. I'll tell you that. Like, <laughs> if it bob like, and if it bothers you to watch me take medication or if it bothers you to watch me cry, that's really, that's another thing. It's not about me. That's something that you don't know how to deal with. And that's fine. You don't have to, but it doesn't affect me because I've been working my whole life to learn how to deal with this that's going on inside my head all the time. And so I don't really care if I was met with criticism or stigma about my mental illness, but I know that it's out there and I know that it does exist. And that's why I think in talking about it is so important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you sound incredibly, um, centered and grounded, which is very, uh, it's nice. (laughs) Uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's really neat to hear that you've had this sort of strong sense of self, uh, for your life, even though, you know, like, obviously the emotional part of things are confusing and, and sort of takes, takes a bit more time, but um, I can't relate to that. Like I've always had real, real struggle with that side of things. Um, do you, it's hard. it is hard. Um, but I, I also like um, on the other side of things, I was thinking as you were talking about not really caring what people thought about you when you were a kid. And that's such a beautiful thing. I think I, I had a bit of that as well. And I, I think um, I could probably thank my mom for that. She was always very sort of goofy and silly and instilled in me a sense of uh, that goofiness and silliness and really just kind of taking sort of just being your own self is such an empowering thing, yeah. especially in mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause you're not like, the human mind is not a one size fits all. You've got to figure out what works for you and there's no shame in anything that you try to do as long as you're not hurting yourself or others. Yeah. However you get to your healing goals. Yeah. Like, 
How how has been so you are a mother, is that correct? I am. You have two boys. Two boys. How They're is eight and nine. Eight and nine. Okay. How has that been? Like how has raising kids been and and being open about your mental health? You know, obviously there is a stigma around mental health at large. There's also a stigma toward, you know, men being, you know, and I've gotten it my whole life, strong, tough, all this societal bullshit. Yeah. How, what are you doing to kind of dispel those things? Um, a lot. I, um, I will say I had them very young. I was 21 when I got pregnant the first time I was 22 when I got pregnant the second time. And it, uh, that was in the middle of me figuring out medication and therapy and not really, um, being ready to heal. Like, mm-hmm. um, that's another, this is just a sidebar that I wanted to throw in there. Like I talked to my sister the other day and she's got a lot of mental health issues as well. And I told her, I was like, I have a great therapist you should go to. And she told me the most honest, sincere, powerful thing I could have heard from her. She said, I appreciate that, but I'm not ready yet. And if you're not, then you're not going to get anything out of it. You have to be ready. Yeah. And I wasn't ready yet. And then I found, and I was still self-harming. I was 21 and I had been self-harming for five years. And I found out I was pregnant with my first baby and I haven't hurt myself since. Um, because my body was at home for another person Hmm. and I didn't want his home to be ugly or scarred or whatever. Not that my scars are ugly. I'm completely fine with them, but I didn't want to hurt his home. I didn't want to make his home a toxic place. And so I, I stopped hurting myself then, but I was still going through with all of my problems, my depression and my anxiety and my inability to properly communicate what I needed. I was young still. And, and then now I had a baby coming and my hormones were out of control and postpartum depression hit me like a fucking ton of bricks. It was the worst and it was hard. And then I I got pregnant again and it hit me again, but twice as bad. And so then I had all of this compacted, negativity and sadness and and two tiny humans that needed love from me <laughs> and I couldn't stop crying some days like I cried all day I would cry when their dad left for work because I missed him I'd cry when he came home because I was happy he was home I cried when he told me that I dropped something on the floor and he picked it up I was like you're so sweet I don't know what I would do without you and he was just like oh whoa what whoa <laughs> I was a mess and it was hard getting through that because I never finished college. Um, I never really found a passion at that point. Like by the time I was already, and when the babies got there, I had this unseen force that I think was kind of societal, but mostly me putting it onto myself. Like you're supposed to have everything figured out because you have these kids and you're supposed to know what you're doing and where you're going and have goals and a savings account. Like you're supposed to have all of this and you don't, and you're a failure. So I had all of that in the back of my mind all the time. And so, and I also wasn't seeking proper mental care either because I, I didn't have the time or the money to do it at this point with two young children. Like I couldn't find a babysitter. And even if I did, I had to pay them and then I had to pay to go to therapy and like I didn't have that money. 
And so I was just kind of left to my own devices at that point. And I just had to get myself through the day however I could. But then this is actually the story of how I started the club. My kids got to be of age where they could go to uh, like a day school and they stayed until noon and I would go and get them. And so I was so happy because I had like a few hours to myself and it had been four years since I'd had that and I didn't know what to do with myself. And I was feeling pretty good. I was like, this is when I can start doing things that I want. I can have a hobby or something. And I go to pick them up from school one day and all of the moms in their like pantsuits and, you know, stuff were like talking to each other. And they're all like at least five years older than me. And then they were handing each other their business cards so that they could, you know, get together and have play dates for their kids. And one of them asked me if I had a card and I was like, um, no. And what are these I business asked, cards or? Yeah. Like business cards. And like, I was like, no, do you have a piece of paper? And I felt so ashamed and embarrassed that I didn't have a business card. I don't care if I don't have a business card, but I felt like all of that, that guilt and, and failure came back. I was like, oh, I'm still not where I'm supposed to be. I still mm. don't have a tailor or a savings account. Like I still don't have, I don't have a business card. Sure. And so I, I went home that day and I had a huge panic attack and to bring myself out of it. I made my, I made a joke. I was like, what would my business card even say? Call me. I cry all the time. And it made me laugh. And so I was like, I'm making that. That's funny. And so I made myself a business card. It said the crybaby club on the front. And why don't you cry about it on the back? And that's where everything started. But my kids have always seen me cry. They've, I've held them while I cried. They've held me like, and I like, and they ask me what's wrong. And I very honestly give them the vocabulary I didn't have hmm. when I was their age. I say, I'm having a bad brain day. Um, my brain is trying to make this little problem into a big problem. Um, you know, things like that. Like I, I say it very simply so that they can understand, but it's also very insightful to say it like that and to have a tiny person hear it because then just the way I heard my mom speak negatively about herself, they're hearing me say not, not positive things, but neutral things about being mentally ill. Like I'm having a bad brain day. I just need a few minutes Yeah. or even saying like, I am really sorry. I yelled at you earlier. That is not your, it's not your fault that I got angry. I, I didn't mean to get angry and being upfront about being a human and, and owning up to what you're feeling and giving them the language that they need to articulate it to me as well. And then, um, also, my my oldest has a diagnosis himself because around age two, I, I started to notice just a little, just little things like he was a little harder to parent. He was a little harder um, to um, rein in. And I started seeking kind of like parental help because I thought maybe if I was doing a better job of being his mother, then he, you know, would be a better behaved child or something. Mm. I don't know what I was thinking, mm. but I was just trying to find resources and I'm sure. not afraid of therapy given my journey. Like I'm not afraid of the stigma and I don't care about what people might think if my son's in therapy and, and all of that. So I had that hurdle that I didn't even have to 
deal with. And so I was just trying to find the resources. And I finally got him a diagnosis last year after he had gotten in trouble at school and gotten expelled and then like had to repeat first grade and all this stuff because the school district wasn't recognizing that he had a an issue. They said that he needed help, but they couldn't really give him anything. Like it was a bunch of red tape. And at the center of it was my child who needed help and I had to be his advocate. And so he saw me go through that as well. And I was just like, no, you're going to figure this out. You're going to help my child. He's not missing any more school. You're not suspending him anymore. And I put him in the same, actually the same behavioral hospital I went into. Uh, but instead of fix him, I went in with help me, help me help him. Like, yeah. yeah. See, like spend time with him, observe him during the day. Tell me what you see. Tell me what I need to do. And we got a diagnosis. He's actually um, bipolar. Okay. Which, which is a very, it's hard to, like it's an unofficial diagnosis because he's so young mm-hmm. and it's kind of hard to pinpoint it when you're that young. But all of the things that he was going through made, like they lined up perfectly with it. And we got, like, I started talking to him about it. And, um, you know, my other son is obviously there too. And so I'm like, listen, you, you've got a brain, um, and your brain is so brilliant and so smart and so funny, but it's also kind of a jerk. And he laughed <laughs> and just like, because you're so smart and, and all of this, but you're also, you know, you're, you've got a bad brain day and you're going to have some because I have some and I'm going to help you learn how to deal with these days. And so we got him on medication and even like the other day I was on a live video chat on my Instagram. He was having a really rough day. And so in the middle of it, he came into my room and he laid on my lap and everybody on the, the live chat saw this and he was like, I, I'm having a bad day. And I was like, well, what's wrong? And he's like, I'm just feeling a lot of things and he's crying. And I was uh. like, well, that's okay. You can, you can feel all those things. Just get it out. If you need anything, I'm here. And if you, if there's anything I can do, you can just tell me. And, and then he went off and worked it out within himself. And then he went outside and rode a scooter. So like, mm-hmm. you know, he knows he can talk to me and they both do. And that's kind of when I like business owner and all of that stuff aside, I realized that being there for my children is better than a business card. They know that they can talk to their mother and that their mother cares them and will stand up for them and will get them help if they need help. And that's more important than a business card. But I also do have business cards now. So (laughs) Well, I mean, that's so, I mean, you sound like an amazing mom, amazing parent, and just advocate for your kids. Like, it's, I'm not a parent. Um, I have two horses and a dog, <laughs> but, um, and I'm certainly not a professional. I'm just a silly boy, but I do <laughs> think about this stuff a lot, and I've had a lot of just experience talking to people and just life experience myself, and I, it does seem like such a no-brainer to me when a kid is acting out or getting into trouble or having anger or something a kid that kid doesn't want to act out they don't want to be angry they're not trying to piss you off or make you upset they're they're probably dealing with something you know, and yeah. so I think um, it's easy for people to just write people off as angry or write people off as, especially kids, right? Or bad. 
as bad or, you know, punish them. But like, we need to like, amazing, good job on you for, for being his advocate and, and, and looking into that. That's, that's awesome. I try, I don't do everything right because no mother does, but I try my best. And also like, there are some kids that are just bad and it's not their (laughs) fault. At the end of the day, it's still not their fault. Macaulay Culkin in the bad seed, truly bad. No, not the bad seed, the good son, which was the remake of the bad seed. Gotcha. Yeah. I knew exactly what you were talking about. Yeah. Um, but like there, like if you meet the parents though, of the bad kids, um, it's it's not a problem with the kids. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. So you just don't parent him. You just let, and they're like, Brendan, get off of the roof. He is so silly. Get him off that roof. Okay. (laughs) He's not, he doesn't know not to go on the roof. That's not funny. Go get him before he kills himself. This is not a joke. (laughs) (laughs) There are kids like that, just in my experience. But I knew, I knew that my kid needed a little bit more from me. And I wasn't, I, you know, he didn't ask to be born and he definitely didn't ask to be born with all these neuroses. So I was like, all right, what do we got to do? I'll do it. Yeah. That's amazing. So as, as a sensitive person myself, you being a sensitive person, Natalie, what are some, uh, I want to get into maybe some lows and highs of being a sensitive person. Cause like with anything there, there are lows and highs, there are highs and lows, there are ebbs and flows, what in your mm-hmm. mind are some of the lows of being sensitive? Oh, being sensitive. It's heavy. It's hard because like, that's why I say sensitivity is a strength and not a weakness is because you're, you're feeling everything and you're not letting it change you. Um, I mean, that's the good side of it. That's the, when we do it right. But in my mind, I mean, I agree. Sensitivity is 100% of strength, and I am very proud of my sensitivity. But I also know that I can take it too far, right? I can take on too much emotionally to the detriment mm-hmm. of my own mental health, you know, things yeah. like that. Right. I've gotten really good at not doing that. That's why I said saying no is like a superpower. Mm-hmm. Like, no, I, I love you very much, and I'm really excited that you're going out tonight, but I just cannot do it. I can't do it. I don't have the emotional space for it, and I, and I rain check. Mm-hmm. And it, turn, it turns out they're still friends with you, even if you say no sometimes. And, look you at know, that. Look at that. <laughs> Who would have thought? But um, the negative side of being sensitive is probably just the, the heaviness that it leaves you with. Like yeah. I feel, I feel everything, um, pretty intensely. And then I also feel other people's pain Yeah, because I'm, because I'm an empath and I can pick up on their sadness. I can pick up on a mood shift. I can pick up on something that other people might not get. And that's really annoying sometimes because I'm just trying to live, you know, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just out here doing my best trying to be a good person as best I can do my work, take care of my family. And and then like I was at, I, w- I had a day job at one point and I was there and someone like a male coworker said something offhanded. That was absolutely an insult, but I don't think my female coworker that he said it about got it. And I don't think he recognized that he said it in the way that he said it. And so I'm sitting here like, oh my God, I hope she's okay. And then I say something to her and she didn't even notice that he Mm. said it. And so I'm sitting here with all of this, this shit in my soul and neither of them were affected at all, but I, I took it like, what even? Yeah. And uh, just, 
And so I'm just like, I'm just trying to live like, and so that's hard because in order to live, you have to be around people and well, most of the time. And in that way, like I can have, I can have an emotion dumped on me that I did not anticipate and I did not invite like somebody, somebody near me being sad or, or someone near me being upset. Like I feel it and it's not, it wasn't in my plan, you know, like I didn't wake up that day and think I'm going to go to target and I'm going to hear Joe Beth on the next aisle fighting with her boyfriend and I'm going to be sad about it for the rest of the day and hope that they're okay and think about them when I go to bed. Like mm. I didn't plan that. Yeah. But being sensitive in the way that I am, I, I hold it for other people even when I'm not really asked to or supposed to. And so that can get really heavy. Yeah. And if we don't have the right boundaries in place, yeah, it could just be way too draining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever struggle with, like I, in, in my sensitivity, I struggle with just being quote unquote hurt, right? Like I, mm -hmm. I take maybe things way too personally or I, and then like the anxiety brain sort of kicks in and I think like, oh, then I start to feel shame, you know, for feeling like, you know, quote unquote, too sensitive over a thing. Do you ever struggle with that? Mm -hmm. I, I used to really bad, like, and, and sometimes I still do, like, um, I understand life is busy, but like I, for a minute there, I was asking people to hang out. I was like, Hey, I miss you. Let's hang out. And they say, Oh, it's okay. Yeah. I'd love to. I'm so busy. I'll let you know. And then I would see them out later with more of my friends, you know? And like, I'm not close enough to any of these people for it to be like a personal attack, but I took it that way. And they probably had these plans for months. Like this isn't, this isn't something just to spite me, but I would get all in my feelings about it and just be like, well, I guess they don't like me enough to make time for me. So, mm -hmm. and then I would feel stupid because I'm like, this is not about you. You, you know, if you want to make plans, just keep asking. That's all you can do. You can't be mad that someone else had other plans that didn't involve you. That's not your life. And so then that goes and I'm like, well, I'm just a crazy loser sitting here alone, worried that no one likes me. Like, and yeah. And, and I would take it personally and uh, yeah. yeah, but I've gotten a little bit better. I've gotten a little bit better with that. Just, just saying it out loud. Like I know this isn't about me. I will say that to some of my friends, like my, my best friend was sad the other day and she said something kind of rude. And I was like, look, I know that that wasn't about me. I know that you're laughing out. That's fine. And I love you. Okay. But let's dial it back a little bit. I didn't do anything. <laughs> love you. Love you. Rain it in. <laughs> and that I made her that. laugh and then we talked about it. But it's just like, you know, I, I know what it's like to be sad and lash out. And it's yeah. not about the other person. It's no. about what you're going through. And so I try to, I try to keep that in the front of my mind all the time because when dealing with people, you have to let them have their stuff, just like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And the other spectrum, the highs of being a sensitive person. I mean, oh, I'll start like one of, one of which for me is, you know, just being able to connect on a level that's just so much deeper. Right. And, and really mm -hmm. have conversations like this, you know, over yeah, real I, stuff. I, love, I, love I don't want to talk about fucking sports. No, God, please don't talk to me about sports. I mean, I can do it and I'll fade right in and I'll get in there with you and I'll yell and I'll say whatever it is that is the chant. But I really, I would just rather talk about things like this. Yeah. And 
I have made so many connections with so many people, like just opening up myself in the space that I do, the club, the crybaby club. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have had women and men and all people from all over the world talk to me about really intense things like breakups and miscarriages and you know, their in-laws and, and losing their job and, and things like this. And, and, and I'm like, wow, they, they want, they want me to listen to them. They want to talk to me about this. And it's kind of a give and take, because like I said, I feel the things of other people. And so I'm taking it on and I'm carrying it. Um, but I'm lightening their load at the same time because they get to talk to me. And I love, I love being able to do that. That validates me in an unseen way. And so it kind of makes it bearable to carry the weight because I know that I'm making a difference in someone else's life by just being like, how are you feeling today? Like, I know you were having a rough day yesterday. And so I wanted to check in on you today and see how you are. And just that, like them knowing that I've been thinking about them and whatever that does for them, I'm not them, I don't know, but I've heard them say like, it's very nice that I'm so intentional and I'm, I care and I listen and I've been there and, and they feel less alone and more validated and, and I do that for them. And so that in turn makes whatever I'm carrying for them a little lighter. Plus I don't really know them. So it's not a carrying them forever. It's just a, kind of holding it with them while they sort through it. And then we both kind of put it down. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Yeah. And it's just, it is, it's beautiful. I've met so many beautiful people. My best friend, I met her because of the club. I've met a couple of my best friends because of the club. And, um, so I love connecting and I love being able to do that on an emotional level because I am able to go there with people And then another thing about being sensitive and just feeling stuff so much, I love to be excited. And I I think that's one of my redeeming qualities is that I will be excited. I'll be excited with you, for you. I will be excited for myself. Like every time someone orders something from my store, I squeal. Mm. Like I'm excited and I want to stay excited all the time, like yeah. not in an obnoxious way. I'm not going to bust in your house and scream or anything, but <laughs> you know, like the first time someone bought something from me, I, it's my goal to feel that way. Every time someone tells me something or, or shares something with me, like I want to be excited. And actually, uh, the person that I'm seeing right now told me that his favorite thing about me is watching me be excited about things. Uh, and, and I was like, oh, I'm so glad you like that because I love it and I wasn't <laughs> going to change it. So <laughs> I'm real glad we're on the same page. Um, well, also just but, what a genuine wholehearted place to be other than like, you don't want to be in a place where like these little joys become no longer exciting. Like what a, yeah, what a sad space all, that is. All in a day. Yeah. And I don't want that. I always want to be excited. Um, I always want to be just full of joy when things happen because I know how rare joy can be sometimes like there are there like not all the time, but when the sadness hits, it tends to linger. And I, it when, when I'm in the sadness, I tend to think days that are going to be good that I know are coming. Mm. And when I'm in the days, the good days, the, the days that I'm having a great just great living experience all around. I 
appreciate them more just because I know bad days may come and it's probably guaranteed that they will. It's almost guaranteed that I will have more bad days, but it's worth it to live in the happiness and the joy and the excitement that I get to feel. And I, it's cause like being sensitive doesn't just mean you feel the negative things. It means you feel the positive things too. And I, I like having such a full spectrum and I like being able to mon- monopolize on my, my happiness and kind of stow, stow it away for winter, so to speak, like a squirrel. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. I'm going to think of this next week when I'm in bed thinking that no one likes me and that I have no friends and I'm ugly and I'm fat and no one's ever going to care about me. Like I'm going to remember this exact thing and how I danced around the living room when I'm in bed wishing that I could just fall asleep and not wake up. Like, yeah. You got your little happy acorns. Yes. My happy acorns. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. That's so, uh, I love that. I mean, amen to all of that. Um, (laughs) I do want to talk about the crybaby club, but I, I first, I, I was curious do you have any like favorite cry stories? Like ones, maybe not when you're three, but the the sort of a moment that you look back on, you're like, that was a really good cry. And you also look back on it with like some fondness and maybe even uh, like some silliness in your heart. Yeah. Oh God, there was one. Um, it's not really, well, I said it's a fondness because um, one of my things that has helped me in healing and just growing as a person um, is to think of myself as my younger self. I feel like she's with me all the time. And when I keep, and by keeping her with me, I remember all the things that I thought I would never have, which she helps me stay excited, like oh, I was talking about. Like, that's so beautiful. You're like validating your little self. Yes, I'm reparenting my little baby angel self and I I really needed it and I've got her with me. And so we, we kind of navigate it together. But when I think about her and all the times that she cried and thought that it was the end of the world, uh, like specifically there was one time I remember laying in my backyard and I had, um, I had two younger sisters and I had, you know, gotten dinner ready for both of them. And one of them was a baby. And so I like rocked her and put her in bed and they were both sleeping. And then I went outside. My mom wasn't there. And I went outside and I laid on the grass and I looked at the stars. And this was back when I was religious because I remember asking God to just take me. And I was crying and my tears were like running down the side of my face, getting into my ears, getting into my hair. And it was so weird, but beautiful in a way because I was so done. I was so done then, but even then I could, I can see my strength then and appreciate it now. Um, because I remember laying there wanting to die, wanting for it to be over. And then also thinking how nice of a night it was and how good the wind felt. And it was just a nice summer night and, And obviously I didn't die, so I got to stay and I got to have more summer nights. And, you know, even then I had a a willingness to stay alive. Mm -hmm. And I'm so thankful that I chose to stay alive and I was too afraid to do anything else because I have a very good life now and I'm in a very good place now and I worked really hard to get here. And I feel like if little me was here, she would kind of look at everything that I have and that I've done and that I'm 
continuing to do and put her little hand in my hand and just say, we did it, didn't we? You know, and just be really, and I would just be like, we sure did. We sure did. And that's, that's how I look about on that one specific crying thing. It's like, I kind of look at it, all of them like that. Like they were all very, um, they were testaments to my inner strength and my willingness to stay alive. And yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, uh, that's awesome. And, and so well-spoken. Um, I'm going to follow that with some silliness. Uh, so I, like, I, I, I love a good cry myself and I, I often find myself crying. Oh, I don't know. Certainly watching Queer Eye and, uh, you know, maybe someone singing like songs make me cry. But I remember, this is, again, silly in comparison to what you're talking about. Oh, songs but, make me cry, too. Yeah. So, one thing that my wife makes fun of me over is I cry over, like, there's a movie. So, the sort of pivotal example was we were watching Hunger Games Catching Fire movie. And mm-hmm. there's a scene in it where the you know, Katniss and sort of her group are being attacked by these like genetically modified, like vicious looking the the monkeys, the monkeys and the monkeys were getting hurt and killed Mm. by Katniss and her group naturally Mm -hmm. because they were defending themselves. But I was deeply upset that the monkeys were dying. I was crying. I was crying uncontrollably. And that's sort of been this, um, uh, my MO ever since. Like I, I can, I can see humans, uh, get slaughtered in, in sort of in movies, uh, and be nonplussed by it. But when animals get hurt, uh, even Mm -hmm. if they're genetically modified killing machines, I get deeply (laughs) upset. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I have funny one now that you said that because that that brought, that brought something up for me. I used to watch little rascals, like the old black Mm, and white ones. Yeah. From the fifties. Yes, when yeah. there were no child labor laws, and they really obviously did not care very much about these children. And, um, you know, I didn't think any of it, anything of it when I was little, but I watched another one. I watched one called, crap, I don't remember what it was called, but it, Spanky was babysitting. Mm. And he had a house full of these babies. And Spanky was really small himself, so it was supposed to be funny that he's trying to handle all these babies. And there's this one little sweet angel girl that keeps climbing up the stairs. And he like brings a couch cushion up and puts her on it and plops her down, like bumps her all the way down the stairs and says, don't climb those stairs no more. And she does it again. And so he glues her to the floor and it sounds like God, like he put like a, a little glob of glue on the floor and then he picks her up and just kind of plops her little butt down on it. And you can see and hear where the tape audio cuts out and you can see her cry. And I can't handle that. It was just, I cry every time I'm about to cry right now. And I wonder where that little girl is and if she ever recovered from that and if she had proper therapy or if she even remembers it. It just, it was so sad. And the poor baby was crying <laughs> and, and nobody Jeez was caring Louise. about this baby. Yeah. Just the 
worse. Just like, a bunch like of people in the background just smoking cigarettes and I know. Drinking. And like letting the kids smoke too. Yeah. Just, well, I don't know what they did back then. But that poor baby was oh glued God. to the floor and I've never been the same. <laughs> Is there like it it makes me think like so I when I saw a uh, ladybird a few years ago, I so deeply resonated with that character that I I had to wait like five minutes before leaving the theater because I was crying uncontrollably. Oh. Like my my wife was kind of like looking at me strangely because she was like, really? From this? And I was just, I was bawling. It hit me so hard. Oh. Is there a movie that does that for you? Oh, God. Um, there's several. And I know I have a silly answer that makes no sense. Um, Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind. Oh, yeah. Um, really hit me because I feel like I was cl- I was very Clementine before I started trying to heal myself. Like I was very um, rash and uh, impulsive and destructive in some sort of ways and hurtful when I didn't mean to be. Had weird hair color. It was very it connected. Yeah, um, it's a good one. And I cry. I cry at a lot of movies. It's been a long time since I've watched a movie, though. I think I cried in Spider-Man movie, the new <laughs> one, the cartoon. Oh, sure. That was a great movie. Like, I get really emotional when things work out. I do, too. Um, yeah. Like, I'm, ju- I'm just like, look at them living. Like, I'm just, <laughs> he I made it. He did it. He did that thing. <laughs> and I didn't think he was going to, but he did. And his father loves him and is proud of him. Like, uh, how did this happen? It's yeah, just I hear that. I'm a um, so let's, let's talk about, um, the Crybaby club. So you've started this, uh, beautiful community of fellow criers and sensitive feely humans. Tell me, mm-hmm. tell me everything. Tell me all about okay, it. everything. Well, I told you how it started yeah. it was with the pantsuit ladies giving business cards and I wanted one. And so I made myself one and I think I had about 80 followers at the time on Instagram and I had just started creating again, really. And it wasn't anything that I was ready to share. I didn't want to share any, I, I hated my art. I, I, which I think is funny. I've always hated my art. I liked my writing. Okay. And my painting was fun, but I didn't really like it. But like, I didn't like my art. I thought it was bad. And I shared the crybaby club card and I was like, Hey, if anybody wants to join my new club, you know, this is my card. Let me know. And five people wanted a card. And I was just so excited. Obviously that's, um, I say that a lot. I was so excited to just draw them something that they wanted. They wanted me to draw them something. And it was just so, I was so humbled. I was like, of course I'll make you one. So I made five cards. I sent them to the people. They posted theirs when they got it, and then five more people came from each of them, and so on and so on and so on. And I was sending out like 50 or 100 cards every week at one point, and I had to start charging for stamps because at first I was just doing it. And then it kind of spiraled into this beautiful, weepy mess, and I had to catch up. And so um, I made I made the Instagram we got a hundred followers overnight. Everybody loved the cards. They loved that. And, and like, see, this was born from my brain as a joke to lift me out of a panic attack. Like mm-hmm. I was being silly and I was making myself laugh. I made it as a joke and 
I started getting emails from people from all over the world that were like, I keep this card in my wallet. I look at it when I'm feeling bad and I know that I'm not alone and I'm okay. But you and needed it. Like, you created it out of a need, right? Like, right, right. But my you, need yeah. was met by humor. Sure, Theirs but it's still an important sort resonation. of mental health component. Right. Yeah. But like, I just didn't expect it to hit people where it did. Mm-hmm. Like, I felt like they would see it how I saw it. Like, oh, this is really funny. I need one. I cry a lot too. Yeah. Not like, I'm going to hold on to this and look at it when I'm sad. I'm going to use this as a reminder that I'm okay and that I'm not alone and that I'm allowed to feel things. And I was like, oh, so it kind of took on a life of its own outside of me. And then everybody in the community, they wanted t-shirts and they wanted pins. And like I said, I didn't have a job. So I was like, okay, well, I'll start a crowdfunding thing and, and see what I can get. And we raised over double what we wanted. We, I say we, it's me. Uh, I always say we. Um, and I got to make two pins instead of one. And uh, after that, it was just me kind of running to keep up with where everything was going. Mm-hmm. And um, like we have 26,000 followers and most of them are members. They're in over 18 countries. I think I've hit all 50 states. I haven't checked, but like I... That's so cool. It, I know. And I'm still so excited about it. Just, <laughs> That's great. Do you feel so proud? Do you feel accomplished? I do. I, I feel really proud. I feel like I could do this for the rest of my life and be happy. Hmm. And What a great feeling. Uh, it, it is. I never thought I would find it. And it just kind of happened like a happy accident. And everyone else was like backing me up and being like, yeah, make that. Yeah, put that on a shirt. And I was just like, where are all you beautiful people coming from? And I was just trying to keep up. And I had to learn all this stuff, like how to get pins and where to get the shirts and who in town does screen printing for the cheapest price. And, you know, all of this stuff that I didn't know about. I I majored in elementary education and I flunked out. (laughs) And I went back to school for psychology and dropped it out. I, I take it maybe two years. I might be a junior. I'm not even sure. Like, um, and so like, I didn't have any skills. Like no one taught me Photoshop and no one taught me, um, you know, how to convert a PDF to a JPEG or whatever. I don't even know. But, and I was working on a 10 year old laptop that had Photoshop still downloaded on it when you could just buy Photoshop instead of having to pay monthly. And, it didn't hold a charge, so it had to be plugged in all the time. Sure. And so I would I would draw something, I would scan it in on my printer, email it to myself from the printer, look at it on the computer and fix it in Photoshop however I needed to, and then send it back to myself on my phone in the proper format. Like it was a whole thing. Yeah. And every the whole time I had a support system going, do it. No, I love it. Keep doing it. And I'm super proud because, like, look where we are. I never thought it would get here. I never thought it would get anywhere. That's amazing. And so you sell um, prints, you sell pins, what other sorts of things? Pins, mugs, shirts, um, notebooks that have my art on it. And I had patches for a while, but no one really likes patches. I don't know why. And... Stickers, just all kinds of fun shops. It's like a little fun flare shop. 
with apparel and all that. And I'm working on e-courses now that are just like, um, not necessarily centered around mental health, but kind of because, you know, creative endeavors have been my way of coping. And so I'm working on like learning to love your handwriting, an e-course of like Mm. practicing until you don't hate your handwriting anymore. And then branching out into different ways to use your your handwriting to make different fonts and things like that. And just something to kind of keep your brain focused. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah. And, uh, then I also, I do pop-up events around the city and I've done them, um, in other cities. I've done one in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, I feel like I know there's been more and I'm just blanking right now, but i my first show was at an urban outfitters, which I thought was just the coolest thing. And everybody came out like people that I had. That was the thing, too, is like people that I had seen on Instagram for years came to my show and I finally got to meet them. And they lived in the city. We just didn't cross paths. And they were like, oh, I love your stuff. I've been following you since blah, blah, blah. And that's how I made most of my friends. That's where most of my friends came from. Uh So it just, yeah, I'm really proud. (laughs) That's awesome. It's a a great achievement. And I'm really uh, I, I love this stuff. I think it's really important and it speaks to this idea that you've lived so well that sensitivity is not something, it's not a weakness, it's a strength. Vulnerability is important and allows us to connect with others and obviously create friendships like you have. Like it's it's a beautiful yeah. thing that we need. Sen- yes, sensitivity is a strength and it's a, ha- it's a hard burden to carry sometimes. And healing is a marathon, not a sprint. And uh, just, I've got a, I feel like I've done a lot of the legwork that if I, like, again, here's little me again. If I could go back and see myself at 15, I would have so much to tell me to help. Like I've, I've done the work. And so I know what works for me and I know, you know, what might work for other people. I don't really give advice because I'm not a doctor, but you know, I will say like, you know, I know that this feels heavy right now and you're allowed to feel that, but you're going to be okay. And, and I would, I would have the tools to talk myself through it. And I would have the ways of making a support system for myself when the one that I'm supposed to have wasn't there and, and just all of this stuff. And so I feel like I'm never going to run out of things that need to be said. And I'm, um, even if I did, I'm never going to run out of people who need to hear them because there are people suffering all over and some of them literally don't have anyone to talk to or yeah. they've never seen anyone else struggle with it. Yeah. And I feel like we've come a long way as far as mental health awareness, but I feel like we've got a long way to go still too. And I'm happy to help in any way that I can just by sharing my story because I think storytelling and sharing your journey with other people is how you connect with other people. 100%. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more, my friend. Um, <laughs> well, let's, uh, we'll plug all your things at the end, but we always wrap up the show talking about empathy heroes. These are people in our lives who are just uh, good examples of empaths, feely humans. I'll go first to give you a moment to think on your empathy hero. Uh, my okay. empathy hero this week is uh, I've been I've been using quotes from authors lately, so I'm going to keep that going. This is a quote from the author William Faulkner. 
Uh, he mm-hmm. says, quote, never be afraid to raise your voice for honesty and truth and compassion against injustice and lying and greed. If people all over the world would do this, it would change the earth, end quote. Um, I just love that. And I think it really, it's, it certainly speaks to what you're doing with the Crybaby Club, um, being honest and, and truthful about our feelings and and having a compassion and empathy in allowing others in and meeting them where they are and, and sharing mm-hmm. our experiences and allowing our experiences to maybe help others see forward and, and see through some darkness. And yeah. um, that's a, it's just such a beautiful thing. So I, I, I really like that quote from uh, Faulkner. And that's why it. he's, yeah, my empathy hero. How about my you? My empathy hero. Well, I have two. They're my they're my children. They're um, they're very empathetic, which um, presents in two different ways in both of them. Like um, my youngest, he he feels like he can't watch certain things on TV. Like you were saying, your movies make you cry, and 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 I have them too. He's the same way. We were walking one day and there was a dead bird on the sidewalk and he saw it and he cried for maybe 20 minutes. And, you know, he just, he feels things and he's so kind. And so it makes him very considerate and it makes like, they're both very considerate because they can empathize with others. And like my oldest son, obviously he struggles with his own things, but he still will offer to help you if you need something like uh, he offers it before you even have to ask. Yeah. Like uh, one day he came in and I was laying in bed and I was on my period and uh, he didn't know that cause I, I was just being lazy. He thought I was just being lazy and he came in and he was like, will you play with me? And I was like, honey, I really wish I could, but I, I don't feel well. And he said, what's wrong? And I said, I'm on my period. And he goes, oh, gracious. Do you need anything? Do you- oh my gosh. <laughs> I, was just, I was like, Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'll take a drink, you know, or something. He brought me something. And he was just like, I'm so sorry. Because like, he's a doer. Yeah. So when, it, when his empathy kicks in, he wants to, like, make me food and bring me stuffed animals. And he wants to, you know, do things oh, like that. Okay. That's his love language, his yes. acts of service. Acts of service. Mm-hmm. Love yep. that. He loves doing that. And, uh, like, we were at uh, my friend's house. And she, like, made cookies for him and made dinner for him and stuff. And as she was cleaning up. He came over to me and he looked really sad and he was like, she did so much for me and I just feel really bad for making her do all this stuff. And I was like, honey, she did it because she wanted to. But if you feel bad, you can go and ask her if you can help clean up. And so he did. Uh-huh. And so, and then the other one is just empathetic in the, in the way that you know that he, he cares because he will cry. Yeah. He will laugh with you and he will, he will scream with you and he will cry with you. Like he's a very emotional being on his own. And then the other one is the one that's going to do stuff to help you fix it. And it's just, they're both really, it's really interesting to watch them feel things and see how they manage it. That's lovely. Uh, it sounds like you have two great kiddos there. I, I like them. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, so Natalie, where, where can people, uh, connect with the Crybaby club and, and learn more about it? Um, well, we are the crybaby club underscore on Instagram, and that's really where I do most of my updating. We have a website, it's the crybabyclub.com. 
and you can sign up for email lists and I keep you up to date. And also there's texts. Um, I recently started doing text messages to people every day, just like a little warm hug in your pocket. If you, you know, need it. Um, if people text, they assemble, Hey, cry baby to the number eight, one, zero, one, zero. Um, they will be subscribed to my text list and I'll send them little pick me ups throughout the week. And they can also text me if, if they just need someone to talk to. And yeah, that's about it. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. And <laughs> listeners, all those, make sure all those links are in the show notes for this episode. Natalie, thank you so much for being on Yumi Empathy. This was fun. Thank you for having me. Of course. And to you listeners, I'm here, you're here, we're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring pale blue dot. We have each other. It's Yumi Empathy. Empathy.